There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Today we're going to talk about networks. Now, I know we've talked about networks on several occasions, but what's unique about today is not so much how to network as it is to how to know if your network is effective or not. So how do you evaluate it? And what distinguishes the top performers' networks from anybody else's networks? And all this focus on networking and collaborating at times takes up too much time. When does it become overtaxing? And then lastly, we want to talk about how do you use that network to provide a sense of purpose in your own work? With me today, I'm very excited to have my guest, Rob Cross. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Business at Babson College. He's got decades of research and teaching and consulting on applying social network analysis ideas to critical business things, actionable insights, and bottom line results. Worked with many hundreds of leading organizations across a whole range of industry around solutions like innovation and revenue growth and leadership effectiveness and talent management. He's written several books, but the one we're going to focus on today is Driving Results Through Social Networks. Rob is also a prolific writer in a variety of magazines from Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, California Management Review, and so on. Fortune, Times Magazine, uh, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company. He's an easy person to find in terms of writing, and I think he's got an awful lot to say, not just in theory about networks, but about how we make these things more effective for us as individuals. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it very much. It's a treat. I'm delighted. Um, Let's talk. You've done a lot of study of analyzing the networks of high performers. Does anything distinguish them from the rest of us? Sure, sure. It's interesting. We have been focused on going out and and mapping collaboration, in essence, seeing who's interacting with whom to get information to do their work or to get decisions approved or things like that uh, across hundreds of organizations, sometimes looking at, uh, you know, group sizes of 40, 50,000, if we're doing this along with an engagement survey in places. And what that's enabled us to do is getting both the network information and then also the uh, company's information around who the high performers are. It's enabled us to uh, really analytically see what distinguishes high performers in terms of how they network and connect with others to be able to get their work done. And uh, perhaps the most interesting thing out of that, or one of the more interesting things, is that we're finding over and over again that a big network is not uh, what creates a high performer, uh, ultimately. Um, in fact, the big network idea, just meeting a lot of people and engaging you know, in, in activities that create a broader and broader network, uh, actually starts to introduce a trap that derails careers these days in terms of uh, collaborative overload, which I know we'll get to in just a minute. Um, but if we look at what the high performers are doing, uh, at, at one level, uh, the, the second biggest predictor we see is that they are much more likely to have an expansive network early stage in problem solving. So right when a project lands in your lap and the last thing you want to do is uh, anything but just get it done and get, get home, uh, there's a category of people that just do exactly that. They hunker down, they get their work done, 
Uh, and then there's another category that will actually reach out into the network to adjacent areas of expertise or to get stakeholder feedback or just to test that the right problem is being solved, either what the client's asked or what the boss has asked. And it is always that second group that reaches out early stage uh, that tends to win. Uh, they, they tend to solve bigger problems, uh, and over time, they get recognized for it in, in almost an invisible way, right? They're uh, accomplishing greater things in ways that the first group isn't, uh, and so they benefit. So the, you know, one big driver that we know matters uh, for performance is not a big network, but a structurally diverse one, one where you're bridging into different areas of expertise and continually mining your network in a way that makes you more creative and more innovative uh, than you, you would be on your own. All right. Multiple ideas in this one. So it's not so much having the big work network. I, I know an awful lot of people worry about accumulating business cards, and I've met people, and I have them in my Outlook database, but I don't actually have a relationship with them. So if I reached out and called that person for advice, they wouldn't answer the phone. So All we right. know that doesn't work. But um, what you're talking about is a network that I can go to to get critical insight on the kind of problem I'm trying to solve. So stakeholders, other experts, people with a different perspective, and its breadth, therefore, did I hear you right, that matters, not size. Right. And you're as likely to see in all this work we've done, you're just as likely to see an introvert as an extrovert. Uh, in, in very well-connected networks. In other words, networks that replicate what the high performers are doing. So it really isn't tied up in being excessively social or collecting massive LinkedIn accounts or, or cards or things like that. What it is fundamentally tied up with, those being um, uh, proactive and thinking about, for example, given something I'm trying to accomplish in the coming six months, what connections do I need to initiate that can either help me supplement skill gaps, help me look at a problem differently, uh, help me get alignment and get um, uptake of the idea that I want to propose. And those people are not going out, you know, as you said, with, with um, a last-second request. What's interesting about the high performers is that they're much more likely to seed the relationships before they need to turn to them for help. So they're usually giving first, even if giving is just reaching out and asking somebody how they like to work together. If you know that you're going to be relying on somebody in the, in the future, uh, giving a, an article, you know, and if it's a superior subordinate relationship, uh, oftentimes just asking for advice, you know, starts to give status in a way that the, the superior then wants to reciprocate on. So that's a real common hallmark is it's not the size of the network, but the quality uh, of it and that the relationships themselves are right. uh, developed and cultivated, uh, you know, far ahead of need out there. Right. Well, and this also, so if you're reaching out to somebody within your network, first to offer a small thing like an article or, you know, just an introduction or even a question of how we should work together, um, that makes the connection work. But you're also not just wasting people's times. One of the things I hear from senior leaders routinely when I'm talking to groups about networking is it's not networking for the sake of networking. Nobody has time for that anymore. So give me a purpose, a reason, a mission, uh, something I can help you with, and then I'm willing to spend that time to help you think. And I can imagine if, as a high potential or a talent, if I am bringing an interesting problem to a senior executive or to another peer somewhere in the organization and I'm wanting their perspective, that helps build my reputation as someone who's focused on stuff that really matters. Right, right. And, and not just to the leader, a formal leader. Like, that's what right, we're used right. to um, thinking about. 
But uh, one of the uh, tips that we oftentimes offer in leadership programs and things is you may know that you need to coordinate at some level with another area of an organization or you need to get into a certain kind of capability to accomplish something you've been asked to do in the future. Um, and that's an increasingly critical skill, right? When, mm-hmm. when everybody talks about learning agility, it's not just in the six inches between the ears that matter, right? It's how you uh, cultivate, build, and tap into networks that enable you to supplement gaps that are inevitably going to increasingly be created as, as times become more and more dynamic over time. Um, and we find that, you know, if you set up a meeting in some area that you need to be coordinating with, either to get the buy-in to do something or to tap into capabilities they have in a certain market or a certain geography, um, you'll pick up the phone, you'll set up a call and, and kind of randomly think about who should you be talking to. Um, what I always urge people to do is as they're walking out of the room is ask the question, who else should I be tapping into? Mm-hmm. Who else cares about this? Who else has expertise in it? And it turns out it's always that second step that gets you to the key network influencers, the key opinion leaders uh, in those groups. And so if you follow a strategy like that, where you're being you know, proactive and intentional with a purpose in mind, obviously targeting the formal opinion leaders, you know, the, the formal stakeholders, but then finding those invisible network influencers too, those are the people that do better uh, over time. Okay. In contrast to the group that tries to perfect a plan early and then take it out and expect people to celebrate its brilliance. Um, that yeah. never happens. It's always better to co-create early and to find, you know, to invest a little bit of that time to find those influencers and get them engaged in co-creating with you. Fascinating, Rob. One of the things that I hear from people regularly is particularly people who are expert managers to begin with. The sense that I need to have done my homework myself before I go and ask a question because I don't want to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. But that limits exactly what you're talking about because there's that sense of I've already thought through this problem and I've already created a path forward and now I'm just looking for your approval on it or secondary insight. And what you're saying is the high performers go out with the intent of helping me think through what really matters in this problem in the first place. Right. I think it's a very fine balance, but in all the interviews we do, you hear people talk about hitting some point in their life when they realize that going out with a perfected plan wasn't any good (laughs) because they um, didn't give people a chance to influence it and -hmm. they didn't give them a chance to get their own interest into it, right, Mm -hmm. and and get Mm -hmm. support from it Mm -hmm. later on. And so it's kind of an interesting uh, balancing point where you're trying to get just enough down that shows that you know what you're doing and you have a viable plan or maybe even a prototype that you're showing. Uh, and a prototype could be anything. It could be a piece of code. Right. It could be a, you know, a plan. But the importance of that is when you show something that's working, um, trust gets built much more rapidly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Then people aren't evaluating, okay, can you do this? They're actually thinking about what do we do with this? And it's a really small thing, but it's a big deal in terms of how ideas kind of progress in organizations. So the more that you can think about what are the elements that I bring in that are going to give me plenty of credibility in this context, but not perfect it, you know, then create that space in the interaction, uh, usually through a positive narrative around what could we go do, right? Not how do we avoid the the negatives. That's, that's not what the more successful people are doing. It's almost always a narrative towards the positive. 
um, that is what creates pull in networks. And, and those people that do that well, they get greater funding from stakeholders. They get greater uptake with their ideas uh, because they're allowing that co-creation, right, and, and people to kind of, you know, pull them uh, in different ways as well. Right, right. So, yes, it feels like it's part of my idea. I'm vested in it. So, therefore, I'm much more likely to do something with it to support it. And in truth, the problems are so complicated, it's likely to be a better solution at the end of the day. Right. I want right. to go back to something you said. Way too many people believe that extroverts are more natural leaders and more effective networkers. And you said in this high-performer population with this ideal kind of network, breadth, not um, size, there are just as many extroverts as introverts. Right. Yeah, you definitely see that the, the two very significant predictors we see of the high performers are, uh, one, it's a, a structurally diverse network, uh, especially early stage problem solving, right, as you're thinking about how to frame a client solution or things like that. And then second is that they are energizers. They're people that create enthusiasm around them, and that doesn't mean they're cheerleaders. You're likely to see... Uh, what I call an energizer disagree with the energizer, but they do it in a fundamentally different way. They don't say that's a bad idea. They say, given where we're trying to go, here's an alternative. Um, those two dimensions, right, broad network and energy, uh, tend to, uh, across, you know, 20 years of work, over 300 organizations, a 1,000 plus data sets, they always out predict uh, measures of the individual, how smart the people are, things like that. Um, and so they're really, you know, very significant things to be thinking about in terms of how you connect, how you engage with others. Um, but it's not personality-based. Um, as I said, we're just as likely to see an extrovert or an introvert, or we've used measures of FIRO B or um, the Big Five or all these other uh, assessment factors. So there's no personality factors that really are going to drive, that you're seeing that drive the differences between the best performers and the other performers in terms of networks and con- connectivity, Correct. Right, right. It's not inherently based on who you are as a person and some of the common misperceptions uh, that are out there when people hear the word network. It's much more tied up in an intentionality and really thinking about, um, you know, what sets of connections are going to enable me to be successful going forward, initiating those relationships early. And then, as I said, um, there's a very, very strong predictive uh, ability of this notion of if you're an energizer, if you're somebody that creates enthusiasm around you, uh, that is, is super important, not because the energizers are happy people, um, but because over time they create pull in networks and better ideas, better opportunities, better talent flow to those people, and they start to win as a product of getting a, a better and better network around them uh, over time. Okay. So give me an example. I think people get confused by what we mean by energizer. You said earlier it was about being positive. But give me some other examples of what it, how I know if I'm being energizing or not. Right. So uh, what we see with the energizers is that they do a number of things um, that enable people to get invested uh, in what's, what's going on. So they're much more likely, for example, to see realistic possibilities in a situation rather than pick a, a goal or an outcome that's so uh, removed that people, you know, blow it off as uh, inheriting too much work or, uh, you know, focusing on work that doesn't match their uh, uh, what they care about, the energizers are much more likely to hit a sweet spot and pick realistic possibilities in a situation that also connect with what other people care about. And as a product of that, they get enthusiastic. People get invested uh, in what those people are up to and want to um, continue to 
work with them or give greater effort to them, uh, they are uh, much more likely to come through on commitments uh, that they make to people. So everybody has been around people that can be incredibly charismatic, but uh, you may get fired up and go off and do your work. If that person never does their stuff, you may fall for it once or twice, but then eventually you start realizing that it's just fluff, right? And so mm-hmm. one of the other things we know is that the um, energizer is much more likely to uh, have uh, follow through on, on what they're going okay. to do. Um, they're much more likely to disagree uh, productively. Like I mentioned, they separate the critique from the person. They expose their own thinking. Much more likely to use self-deprecating humor in a situation so that they take uh, tension or stress uh, out of a room and do it in a way that doesn't uh, marginalize others. There's nine really specific behaviors like that that we find uh, the energizers do more systematically. And the key to them is, uh, you know, you, you would look down the list and you'd say, gosh, I do these things. The real key is not do you do them or not, but what do you do when you're under pressure? Right? What do you, one or two uh, items do you systematically want to pay more attention to uh, as uh, somebody that's focused on creating enthusiasm? And that tends to be the big distinguisher, right? That the energizers, they stay a little bit more present in the moment. They stay a little bit more um, focused on possibilities. They're a little bit more thoughtful in how they're disagreeing with others, uh, even when under stress or time pressure. Okay. Interesting. So I often use the word um, diplomacy, particularly for some of the stuff of under pressure when there's a lot of disagreement. And that's an element of it here. But you've also got this notion of there's a, a, a realistic assessment of what we could do and what this would look like. And um, ability to get people um, realistically engaged and committed and following through. I like it. Right, right. And you find even the, just the notion of presence uh, is a big yep. deal. So a lot of times in big audiences we'll be um, at, talking about what is it that creates energy or enthusiasm. Yes. And one of the things I'll have groups do is stand up, pair up, and I'll say, okay, one of you become A, the other become B, and A, in, in 10 seconds, I want you to tell B something you're really excited about in the coming six months, and I'll give them a few seconds to think about it. And I'll say, B, when I say go, I'm going to go one, two, three, go. And when I say go... Your job is to be as humanly disinterested as possible. And um, then they laugh about it and they, you know, start A, tries to, to tell B something interesting that they're excited about. But it's, it's impossible, ultimately, to be enthused about something in the presence of somebody that just doesn't care. You know, they're checking their <laughs> phone, they're looking at the watch, they're slouching in their chair, the physical presence they give off shows yeah. they're not vested. And so, you know, one of the elements we also see is they are where they are. And they stay and maintain a full presence in terms of how they're asking questions. They don't try to believe that uh, they're that one magical person that can multitask and not get caught. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, right. um, and so there are a number of very tactical things that tend to really distinguish those people. Okay. And they win over time. When I say it's a predictor uh, of a high performer, uh, it, it usually is four times the predictor of a high performer. So the diverse network uh, always beats just how smart people are. And then the energy dimension, uh, usually that's about four times the predictor of success over time. So it's very much worth uh, thinking about and focusing on items like that. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about this whole notion of collaborative overload. But before we go, I just want to hit what I find is really, really fascinating about this. And I think it's actually a good sign. Because to me, 
This being more intentional about the network that you create, starting it early, asking for perspective and opinion, giving people a chance to have influence, intentionally reaching out to key influences in the organization, and asking those influencers who else you should talk to. Using that as the base for building your network and beginning to think about who's going to be good for your career for the long run, who could be useful for you in solving problems for the long run, and reach out early rather than in the moment of crisis. Um, Doing that early, doing it intentionally, and then doing it in an energizing way as opposed to de-energizing way. And I love the statement, four times the predictor of high performance. I think that's a pretty good formula for managing career. So with me today is Rob Gross. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Business at Babson College, worked with hundreds of companies across a range of industries on many business problems. The book that I find most fascinating recently is Driving Results Through Social Networks. And we'll be right back to talk about collaborative overload. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rob Cross. Rob is a professor at Babson College, having worked with over 300 leading organizations across industries and written quite prolifically about social network analysis. In particular, we've just been talking about high performers and the networks of high performers that distinguish them from other people. And as Rob has said, it's not so much IQ or personality factors as it is having the breadth of network, reaching out early to that network for problem solution and input and influence, as well as being an energizer, four times a predictor of high performers than anything else. So, Rob, I want to turn to the second half of this, because everywhere around the world, collaborative is the buzzword. I feel like it is right. being engraved in stone in every company everywhere, and we all know that there are great benefits of collaboration. I think most of the people who are victims of yet one more collaborative meeting after another are starting to feel, is this really worth it? 
I also personally think we don't know what we're talking about when we ask for collaboration, but that's a different matter. You've written about it in terms of collaborative overload. So what's your thinking here? Right. It's something that I got interested in really starting about 10 years ago. As we have seen, you know, organizations move into matrix-based designs, increasing focus on globalization, obviously uh, the email and collaborative tools have, have exploded in different ways. The complexity of work has exploded, requiring collaboration in different ways to be able to produce drug compounds or software or technology innovations. And so it, it really got me interested in measuring the degree to which collaboration was taking a bigger and bigger chunk out of people's lives. And what we found is the, because we can measure it analytically, doing all the network analysis that we do, is that the collaborative time demands, the collaborative intensity of work has risen about 50% uh, or more over that time span. And to, to put that in real terms, what I always ask people to do is just reflect for a moment on a typical work week. And most people say, I don't have one, but imagine you had one typical work week. And just reflect on the percentage of time cumulatively altogether that you're spending in these three activities, time spent on email, time spent on the phone, and time spent in meetings, virtual or face-to-face. And for most of us, you just kind of roll your eyes and groan, right? It's, it's 85% uh, in any group I'm talking to and goes up to 110% with somebody that's really ticked off the amount of work coming home with them. And so we've, we've seen this explode, you know, over the past decade, the, the volume of the collaborative demands and then also the diversity of them, the number of kinds of issues that can get your attention and require you to have to switch across complex domains. Uh, I don't think our brain has been exposed to ever uh, in the past. And we're finding that it has really big impacts on, on people. Uh, it's become the biggest derailer. We see if high performers, just like we can look at networks and see what predicts somebody that's successful over time, we can also use those same ideas to say what are the traps that derail people that are otherwise uh, on an upward trajectory. And we're finding that it's become, uh, over this time period, the biggest network-based derailer that we see. And it's also associated with different health impediments uh, for people, mm-hmm. particularly if you are at the manager-manager level and the primary uh, wage earner in your house, man or woman, doesn't matter. Uh, it's a really tough and miserable place right now that has uh, consequences in terms of, of stress and other things like that for both our uh, mental and physical well-being in different ways. So I think it's a very real issue, um, but I also am surprised at how invisible it is in most organizations. I can't think of another resource if you if you pointed out that look this consumption of this thing in this case employee time has gone up 50 percent in a 10-year period the chief financial officers would be all over it and and trying to say what in the world is going on yet this is an issue because of its invisibility that really just uh, continues to fall to the individuals to figure out how to how to manage and uh, uh, make do in, in tough times like this yeah um A couple of ideas that I want to tag on to this one. I think you're absolutely right about this, that the amount of time we're doing in collaborative efforts, and you define that as email, phone, and meetings, virtual, otherwise, and I would add collaborative tools like discussion boards or other such devices that get Mm -hmm. dispersed teams interacting. So there's this commitment that I have to document this and post it and do all that kind of routine as well on top of it, plus Slack, plus whatever else you use. There's a lot of it going on and all going on simultaneously. So 
on the one hand, it's just the volume of the hours that you're putting into that kind of effort that we didn't used to do. And you start doing it and the hours go up. So it's a challenge to keep that down to some moderate number of hours in the day. Plus, um, you said the complexity of what you're dealing with, the number of things at the end of the day that you have thought about or haven't finished thinking about or still carrying around in your brain, I think is absolutely overtaxing. I think that's what's creating stress. More than the hours, it's the complexity and the number of things you're thinking about. Right, right. Yes, I don't think we have, again, been exposed to that. You know, as human beings, there's the volume of information, but then um, we're learning the inefficiencies of how we choose to interact. For example, one of the things we know about the efficient collaborators is they're much more likely to block time in their calendar to do thoughtful work. They're much more likely to strategically calendar, say, on Sunday night or uh, Friday night to think about what do I want to accomplish over the coming week or two weeks, depending on their uh, level in the organization and planning horizons. Um, but that uh, thoughtfulness in terms of thinking about not just time management. It's not another yeah. an effort to manage time differently. It's really a matter of how do you block out um, other distractions and not get drawn into things that are going to pull you away from your own objectives, your own North Star uh, mm-hmm. over time. Um, one of the studies a colleague of mine passed to me showed that we lose 64 seconds recovery time. If we just look down at a text and back up, Um, It takes, at least in this study, uh, 64 seconds to recover to the task that you were focused on, right? And so you magnify that with all the the volume of things coming at people. And if you let email constantly distract you or you let people walking by constantly distract you, et cetera, um, it puts an enormous tax on us that um, we don't always experience, you know, in a way that we can put our finger on, but it has that effect, like you said, at the end of the day of being... Uh, exhausted, worn out, over overstressed in ways that I just don't think right. you know generations before have experienced. Right, and then that's what you wake up in the middle of the night remembering something that you forgot to do during the day or the thought that you needed to do and haven't written down and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I love the quote the Stanford study that says, I put you in the middle of a task and I interrupt you, and how much time do you lose when you get finish the interruption and come back to the task? And the study says 23 minutes. Wow, wow, I didn't know that's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's amazing to me. And you, you kind of magnify that with a number of interruptions or just how people choose yeah. to work. And it is addictive to keep your text on, right, or to keep your email um, constantly, you know, thinking you need to respond. Yeah. So I do, you know, what I see in the work that we've been doing is it's just like building a productive network. It's not using a certain tool that matters. It really is not going to be Slack that solves this problem in aggregate. I mean, Slack's a fine tool but it's not going to solve this problem in aggregate. It's much more tied up into becoming more disciplined with how you you know, choose to collaborate uh, that we see as the real distinguisher with the more efficient people. Okay. So, and I know lots of people who say, yes, I get your point, Wanda, but my boss isn't going to allow this. My boss expects rather instantaneous response. So if I turn off my email for even 30 minutes, I'm going to be yelled at. What's your advice for people about how to manage this collaborative overload and do that versus the average person in an organization? And then I'm going to ask the second question, what if you're the manager? Right. So one of the, and and every level will have that problem. The manager will say the same thing about their leader. Yep. (laughs) So it, it to me is always a matter of 
Um, and of course, there's some people that are just unreasonable, right? And they themselves have likely become overloaded and gotten stressed out beyond belief. And one of the more interesting findings from our work right now is we find that um, if the people that work for an overloaded leader, so if we see this in networks in terms of the volume of demands on them and others needing more of their time and things that we can quantify, uh, it turns out that in one study we just finished, people that work for leaders like that, they were 260 plus percentage more likely to leave the organization Ooh. than just the average person uh, in there. And so I think a lot of times what happens when you get to unreasonable leaders and unreasonable requests is they themselves have fallen into this trap and they've become very reactive and, and propagating that down. So um, one of the hallmarks we know about the more efficient collaborators, and I want to come back to that also and describe what they're doing more holistically. Okay. Um, and one of the hallmarks we know is they're more likely to proactively manage role interdependencies. Right? So with a leader, they're more likely to, when they can, um, point out how some of these last-second requests are cascading, not just on them, but potentially down to their team and the disruptive cost that that has. You can't do that when the request is made. Right? You have to get ahead of it and say, can we work differently? Um, and can we find a different way to process this information or like, get stuff up on a website so that you're not reliant on me all the time? Um, that tends to be one way that, that people will approach that specific dynamic, you know, and being more um, uh, more focused on managing the role. And, and there are all sorts of other drivers of overload that, that happen. You know, the, the most people describe scenarios where, they were good at something five years ago, and people just keep coming back to them because they've gotten used to them as the path of least resistance. And so thinking about how do you create an alternative go-to person or put what you know up in some other medium so that people can go to that place versus you. And that could be a blog. It could be a knowledge-based repository. It could be any number of devices. But the idea is to get those requests to one space, one point in space or time versus you know multiple requests on you. Um, no matter how they do it, we find that they're the more efficient collaborators and more systematic about managing their role in a way that shifts these demands off of them uh, over time. Uh, and so that's, that's perhaps the biggest, um, biggest hallmark of what we see with the, the more successful leaders is they're, they're imposing structure into the situation, okay. whether they do that by managing the role, by calendaring strategically, by having greater clarity on what their own North Star priorities are. They have a, a better sense of anchors that enable them to, to push things away in, uh, uh, in different ways. So okay. that's, that's one trait, and I can tell you about another one in a second, but let me pause there and, and see if you have any reactions to that. <laughs> I think that's really, really powerful. This, I mean, I certainly see it. People that end up not being overly stressed in the organization and tend to be delightful to work for because you know what you really have to focus on. Or seem to be really good at this stuff. And the things that you said are they're really good at um, managing their own calendar and focusing on what it is that matters for them and finding space right. and time to do that. And they'll impose structure on it and they'll find other solutions rather than having people come back to them one time after another after another for the same questions. I also like this notion that you don't say to somebody, quit coming back to me. You say, let's find a way to work differently. So I get ahead of it right. rather than react to it in the moment, which always feels negative. Right. So now right. I think that's one of the ahead. biggest things with people being successful today is it's very easy to become reactive and to think things are going to get better in six weeks. 
um, and then, you know, to do just respond to the system, right, versus being proactive and revising norms, initiating connections that pull you towards your North Star. Um, I, if I were to pick one idea that I think is the most important in all of this, it's that notion of not getting reactive, right, and, and being proactive and, and forward-looking for sure. Okay. It's going to make me go back and look at my own calendar, I'm going to have to say. Um so now you said there are a number of drivers of people who mm-hmm. don't get overstressed. And I want to come back to repeated stat you said, because I think it's really powerful. If you work for an overloaded leader who sometimes makes unreasonable requests or last minute and is very reactive and is overstressed and not enough time, you are 260% more likely to leave. Boy, does that right. have implications about how we manage. All right. So having repeated that, are there other things that draw, that are hallmarks of um, people who are not overloaded leaders? Right. Perfect question. Yes. So the, the first for me is uh, this idea of how do you impose structure, right? And then mm-hmm. through different devices, um, people do that differently. Second piece for me, and, and this was one of the most interesting things, and I was amazed it took me 140 interviews into a 200-person you know, interview study to to recognize the pattern, but I, I would set up calls with people and I would say, I'd like 90 minutes of your time and, and I'd like you to talk to me about uh, how you're handling overload. Talk to me about times when you've been thriving in your work and coming up, you know, fully, fully present. And we would start focused on what creates collaborative overload for you today and how are you coping with it and what are some of the practices that you've learned. And the people I was interviewing have all been defined as efficient collaborators. They're already people that are giving the greatest return in networks and taking the least amount of time. So we're pulling away the the, uh, the tips and the small things they do on the margin that get them back about uh, 18 to 24% of their time compared to the average. But I hit a point in all these interviews, um, man or woman, didn't matter, level, industry, uh, at some point, usually about the 45-minute mark in, um, they would start telling me a story. And they would say, Rob, I hit a point in my life where I was fed up, I'd had it. You know, I wasn't seeing my kids, I wasn't healthy, whatever it may be. Um, and it was very emotional, right? Very uh, poignant to them as they started to tell me the story. And so every single time somebody went down this path of saying I had it and I was, you know, had to take, you know, significant action, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I was absolutely sure that they were going to then tell me a story about, you know, going to hike in Nepal, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking a six month hike on the Appalachian Trail or just kind of something really extreme was how they decided to get their life back. And, and yet every single time it was something incredibly mundane that they decided they were going to go do. So they were going to go home one day a week on time or they weren't mm-hmm. going to, you know, answer emails 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. until the kids were in bed or you name it. But these mundane things they would worry about for two, three, four weeks, talk to other people about how they were going to implement it and finally go do this outrageously crazy thing. And nobody noticed 90% of the time. And so it, it, you know, they would laugh about it, about their own importance in the situation. But what really became clear to me in that component of the interviews was that what uh, drives overload is not just nasty bosses, email, and time zones or matrix-based structures. That's a component of it. But at least I'm convinced 50% of it is how we choose to show up. And, you know, some people, they get identity because they love to help. They have a more selfless orientation. And so by virtue of that, they tend to give quickly and early, and they become the path of least resistance for others, and things come back to them. Uh, another category of person loves status. 
and situations. So they love to be the expert, the recognized individual. And they uh, intentionally or unintentionally create conditions where people keep coming back to them in a certain domain. And some people are just scared. They, they have this binary view of the word no. And, um, uh, you know, they, they're scared to say it right, when they get asked to do something versus thinking about no on a continuum, offering transparency into competing demands you have so that the, the request gets kind of framed and positioned in a way that you can do. But what we've seen in there is that we all have these triggers, right? And most people uh, on this show, I'm sure, can reflect on a time in their life when they got asked to do something and you know with every fiber of your being you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway. And then two months in, you're wondering, why am I here again? And that's mm-hmm. that kind of identity trigger. Right? Is it, do you like okay. the health? Do you like status? Are you scared? And what we find is that um, you, that's a really important thing to manage first. And, and again, I can come back to in, in a moment some of the, uh, the tips, the very tactical things the more efficient collaborators do. But this idea of how you get identity uh, is more important than I think a lot of people realize. And again, that's not something that, say, a Slack or other uh, technical you know, solution is obviously going to solve. It's a mindset, and I have to decide right. something about my value, which I think is one of the hallmarks of getting out of being just a pure expert leader anyway, is getting your mind focused on where it is that you add value and why you add value and what it is you're right. going to do, what's the nature of the work that you're going to do. And once you get those two attitudes, that's your identity piece, then some of these other tactics become much simpler. Um I know we need to take a break, but I can't take a break without hearing a bit more about the tactics because it sounds like these tactics are actually rather simple, straightforward things that truthfully anybody can do. So give me a few of them. Right. Right. Absolutely. So you find the more efficient collaborators, they give half time. You know, so if you're asked for an hour meeting, they give 30 minutes and they have a hard stop, real or imagined, that they communicate. Um, Humans have the uh, unbelievable ability to expand and then take time, yep. and they tend to leverage the, the reverse of it. They uh, use email differently. You know, they, they write different emails, you know, shorter, more concise, clear requests. They don't send them at all hours of the night. They'll, they'll, they'll send emails when they need to, but put it on delay function so that they go out in the morning and don't create a frenzy right, for people around them. Uh, the biggest thing they do across all the work we've seen is they manage meetings differently. Uh, they're much more likely to put structure in in terms of, you know, who gets invited, uh, facilitate in a more crisp forum, stop 10 minutes early so that uh, people, you know, that need to leave and get to the next meeting aren't missing things that are um, finished, and they'll post an agenda. Right? So if you've missed it or if you don't have to be in the meeting, you can just get kind of caught up on what was written there. Um, there's a whole suite of things like that that are the more easy things to grab hold of that we find the efficient collaborators do. Um, but again, it, it only works in the context of these other two ideas. Are you putting structure in that shifts the demands away from you? Are you careful, like you said, of the identity piece and you're mindful of where that might uh, kind of pull you away from your North Star? And then are you, um, you leveraging the tactics? And what we find is that people that just commit to doing three or four things differently uh, can get back about 18 to 24% of their time. But those three or four are different for everybody. There is no mm-hmm. kind of one massive silver bullet solution. It really boils down to saying of these 25 items ultimately uh, in all of this, what are the right three or four for you, know, you to engage in and to be proactive on? 
those people that, that do that, they, they tend to be much better in terms of getting uh, time and space back, that, which enables them to, of course, build a different Fabulous. kind of network over time. Oh, fabulous. All right, we're going to take a break, a very short break here. With me today is Rob Cross. I think these ideas are incredible. The notion is what is it that efficient collaborators do? And I love this notion that you can get back 18 to 20% of your time by thinking about how you use structure to shift demand away from you, to managing your own identity so you don't say yes to things that you need to say no to, and then a variety of tactics that make you a bit more efficient in the way you're managing meetings and pick three or four of those that work. When we come back, I want to talk about how all of this ties up with this lovely concept called purpose, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Rob Cross. Rob is a professor at Babson College. If you'd like to read his writing, it's in Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, California Management Review, Financial Times, Time Magazine, and we could go on and on and on forever, Fast Company. The most recent book is called Driving Results Through Social Networks. We've been talking about this whole notion of collaboration. So networks starting with collaboration in terms of who do I reach out with to help me solve problems and get buy-in and think through the problems, not necessarily solve them. And the second part is the collaborative overload that comes with the increased demands of time we have now in using collaborative devices like email or meetings or phone calls or Slack or whatever the tool is available and how to manage that, what the best performers do that the rest of us don't do. Now, the last tease on all of this one for me is how does all of this impact our sense of purpose? So, Rob, how does that fit in here? Right. Great question. We've um, been very interested in this. The same notion of the increased collaborative intensity of work causing uh, us to experience costs and inefficiencies of that. It also means that more and more of how we experience life in organizations today 
is uh, consumed in, in the network, in the interactions. And we've actually been out mapping this idea of purpose, you know, and literally seeing in groups of 20, 30, 40,000 people, who are the individuals in this organization that when you interact with, you uh, walk away feeling like what you do matters or has impact uh, at the end of the day. And it's really amazing to see. You know, quantitatively, we can look at these network analyses and identify, you know, some leaders that are better at creating the sense of purpose or meaning in work, and they enjoy great benefits. You know, they tend to attract high performers over time. They tend to have lower attrition rates around them. People give greater effort to what they're up to. Um, it really has a significant impact on the people's success over time, or if you're a follower and you're able to create it. It has a big impact on the, you know, the rapidity with which you become a leader uh, over time. And so it's been something I've been super interested in through a lot of the interviews I mentioned. Uh, and uh, perhaps the thing that, that caught my attention the most last year when I was doing the focus around thriving, people that reported thriving in their work, was um, I interviewed some companies as a part of this. I won't mention any names, but they were truly doing noble things. They were curing cancer, building infrastructure for the poor, feeding the hungry, uh, truly noble pursuits. I mean, really purpose-infused work at the heart of it. And then I had one company, very well-known company, good company, but made the most boring product possible, uh, very good at it, but still a flat-out boring product. And you would have expected, going through all these interviews, that, of course, the people that were feeding the hungry or building infrastructure for the poor or solving cancer – that those organizations would, would feel a sense of purpose, right, and a sense of thriving and we're in it, you know, for something big. And it turned out not to be the case. In fact, in many cases, they were, they were so focused on their own results, their own objectives, and uh, kind of bitter places to be, quite frankly. In contrast, the boring company, from top to bottom, the people that I interviewed in that organization were convinced they were changing the world. And I would laugh with the leaders and say, you know, it's a boring product. <laughs> and they would laugh back and say, don't tell anybody. Um, but, but really, what that struck me with, the key insight, and the, one of the things I'd want to leave for people is that we always talk about purpose as being in the work. Do we do some work that's, that's meaningful? And I've become completely convinced that 50% or more of um, how you experience a sense of purpose or meaning is actually in the network. And it's in the way that, that organizations or people or leaders craft the sets of interactions that enable people to feel a sense of impact. So in this boring company, uh, they had a mandate that you always start with the why of the work before the what and the how. And so that always gave a, a constant reminder, constant focus around doing stuff that matters, uh, even in the context of this, what I'm calling a, a boring product. Leaders were encouraged to co-create early. Uh, with their mm-hmm. followers to take time up front to think about, um, you know, what and how to do things versus coming in and delegating, right, a right. predefined plan. Uh, they were much more likely to hold systematic one-on-ones with their followers where 50% of the time was off task. So they were getting a sense of what are the aspirations you have. And then on the margin, those leaders that know what those aspirations are are much better at shaping work that comes along, right? It's not like work for most of us is this thing that progresses through a process line anymore. It actually, you can shape it and, and, and redefine it with stakeholders and do things in a way that actually align with people's uh, aspirations better. So when we say that, it's, it's really critical and, and important. We can see it quantitatively in the networks. 
But the important piece to me, too, is that it's, it's pretty tactical, just like the energy ideas. You find the people that create contexts that are more purpose-filled. Um, they're just basically doing certain things that enable that, uh, that context to emerge in the network. That's amazing because what you've described here is actually a very straightforward, simple set of things for a manager to do. Start with the why versus the what and the how. Help people co-create. Let people have some say in how they're doing the work that they're doing. You use the word co-create versus just saying, here's what we're going to do and let me divvy up the tasks so everybody has their responsibility. And I love this notion that in the one-to-one time you have with your direct reports, 50% of the time is off task which means you're getting to know the person, you're showing that you care about the person, you're remembering aspirations about the person, even if that's all you do and you never get to shape the work. I can't imagine somebody pretty excited about that. Right, right. The interesting thing to me is, the you're, and you're absolutely right, you know, as, as I did the, the several hundred interviews of these very successful leaders, was talking, asking each company to give me you know, five very successful women, five very successful men, and you determine so many of these subtle, seemingly simple practices that took them 20 years to uncover <laughs> and, and, you know, their experiences to see how and why people commit. Um, but the interesting thing to me in all of this is how, uh, how some people do it well and some people don't. When we do the network analysis and we look to see who are the people that are creating a sense of purpose in places and who are, are the people that aren't, you'll find that the top quartile leaders in some places are maybe uh, creating a sense of purpose and impact for 16, 17 other people, right? We can count it, we can quantify uh, the numbers there. You look at the bottom quartile and you find people that are not even able to get to one person uh, in terms of creating the sense of purpose or meaning. And so I think the trick is really, and when we're doing this through the connected commons and other vehicles, making these tools and diagnostics available, um, the trick is to really help educate the the other, you know, the bottom quartile in particular, but people uh, educate around what are these invisible practices of the more successful people. Great. And um, Great. and you're right, they're never magic, but they're things Great. that they've uncovered and learned over 20 years. And the more we can make that transparent, uh, the the better off for everybody. I think. All right. Fabulous, Rob. Sadly, we are out of time. I have this feeling we could talk for an hour or more. With me today is Rob Cross. One of the books that I highly recommend is Driving Results Through Social Networks, but I'm going to stay tuned for more of this purpose-driven, what it is that leaders are doing that creates that sense of purpose. Rob, what strikes me most in all of this is the notion of intentionality in my network early and proactive in getting ahead of some of the sinks of time. So, Rob, thank you for being a guest, and join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.